0: to the Identity Trust Pulse, where we bring you the latest insights and trends from the fraud and identity industry. What is behavioral biometrics? How did the technology evolve and why should behavioral biometrics be on your fraud and identity roadmap? My name is Anton Klipmark, and I will be your host as we learn more about behavioral biometrics. In this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Neil Costigan, chief architect of behavioral biometrics at LexisNexis Risk Solutions and formerly CEO of LexisNexis BehaviorSec. An advanced behavioral biometrics technology provider that was acquired by LexisNexis Risk Solution. Neil has a wealth of experience in fraud, identity, and authentication. From public key infrastructure and early 3D secure protocols in the late 90s to DARPA research and commercialization of behavioral biometrics at BehaviorSoft. I myself have the privilege of working with Neil at BehaviorSoft. It's with great pleasure I invite you to today's identity trust pulse episode. Welcome, Neil.
1: Thank you, Anton. Uh, nice to see you. It's It's been too long. Yeah, it's
0: really been. <laughs> Hopefully, we we'll see each other again soon.
1: I'm not so far from you this morning, actually. I'm in New York, so just yeah, up the good road. Good enough.
0: To start, let's delve into the evolution of behavioral biometrics. When did behavioral biometrics emerge?
1: Behavioral biometrics is quite a broad uh, term. It's used in many different places along the way. but we. Um, refer to in this context as behavioral biometrics is this idea of uh, analyzing the interaction somebody has with their device or browser uh, and using that to verify that person is who they say they are so it's this this idea of interaction and uh, being analyzed for your behavior so it's not really what other what a broader term of behavior analytics is this is more behavioral biometrics and this came to the to, to kind of prominence uh, uh, mid-2000s, around 2006, BehaviSec uh, originally had this concept and, and spun it out of university. And that's where we see a lot of use of this term behavioral biometrics. But this then, this interaction, this, this is actually an old idea. Um, if one d- takes it down into just keystroke dynamics, uh, this goes all the way back to the age of, of Morse code. That uh, time was of the essence and, and, and Morse operators realized they could Uh, you know, not do introductions to each other. They wouldn't go, hello, hi, it's Neil, they would just tap away and the other end would know them because it was people they interacted with quite a lot and they would tell from the rhythm of the morse that that person is who they say they were. And so they use this idea of behavioral uh, in the keystrokes on the morse wire. And there's some, there's some uh, that evolved actually during World War Two, that was used as part of the um, kind of espionage side of things. when the crypto breakers were trying to figure out where messages were going to and from even if they didn't know what the messages were they would analyze and listen to the rhythm of the typing on, on the morse wires uh, and that was able to they, they built up banks of users based on their patterns so, so the, the keystrokes goes all the way back um, and then it evolved a bit there was uh, in the early 70s there's some IP from IBM where they built custom keyboards, um, and what they did was put in extra sensors in them, so that the, the keyboards were modified, and using the extra precision, they made an attempt at using keystroke rhythm again to identify the user as a, as a layer of security. Um, but the kind of application area, the the, the 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 what's now known as machine learning, but the statistics behind it was rather basic back then. They wouldn't analyze everything. They would get an end user, a consumer, uh, more like the uh, a call center operator or a, an office user to sit down and repeat common phrases over and over and over again. They would sit down and maybe a hundred times read out a sentence like the quick brown fox. Uh, and instead of looking at everything, because computational power was quite limited, they would just take the keywords like the and ah, and you know, and, uh, "and" watch other person type those and then analyze when they typed them again. What that was for. It um, didn't get very widespread use back then, uh, but the idea, the concepts are, are quite similar to what we uh, jumped on, you know, as I said, mid 2000s, where um, we kind of looked at this area and realizing there'd been quite a lot of advances in machine learning, actually from the gaming industry, you know, predicting what characters would do. Uh, we applied some of those techniques uh, originally to it and moved the the quality, the scoring of the behaviour biometric into something more uh, commercially viable, you know, not just an academic curiosity. Uh, but then also we kind of looked at it and what were the reasons for, for, for why people didn't really use it? And a lot of it was to do with usability and quality of scoring. Um, and given computing power had moved on quite considerably, we were able to innovate through the years, adding things like uh, not just fixed sentences, but free text, which is much more usable uh, trying to reduce that training, not just the time, but even doing doing away completely with training instead of, of forcing somebody into a behavior. You want their natural behavior and what's more natural than letting them do what they normally do to train. So there was an enhancement, uh, behavior, sex, innovation, you know, on the roadmap of taking this behavior biometrics there. Um, And then finally, we've moved from the world of of just consoles and keyboards uh, into uh, GUI. And so there's a whole bunch of extra inputs that come. It's not just uh, your typing, it's your mouse movements. It's not just your uh, mouse movements, it's the screen and how you swipe and move. And all those extra additional sensors really enhance the quality and made, I guess, behavioral biometrics to what we know today which is you know, very widespread, commercially viable and a very solid tool in the arsenal of uh, security or fraud uh, prevention uh, 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 tactics. So that's kind of a you know, a kind of background. But, but along the way, actually, just as an aside, um, DARPA, who we all should know and love from their support of things like the internet, the GPS systems, the kind of moonshot ideas that come out of Arlington, where you are actually, today, uh, Anton, it's, it's Arlington, they're based, uh, they saw this vision, they had this vision back, I think around 2009, 2010, when they went, that they felt the human would be part of the future of security, and we're looking for uh, ideas or, or uh, you know, kind of uh, concepts that would work with that, and and we at BehaviourSec uh, proposed this behaviour biometric as a solution to this idea of active or continuous authentication. And so DARPA for a number of years funded, what well, we call advanced research, you know, it's in the name, uh, in this area. And that was what helped us have the time um, and focus to really evolve the algorithms, to move this into the point, as I said, where it's, it's very commercially viable and, and, and so uh, widespread today.
0: Yeah, thank you for the history lesson. I, <laughs> I think of that, that DARPA anecdote a lot when I when I walk around here where I live, that, uh, they have signs where, like DARPA helped found the ARPANET, and, and I think that one day it will be cool to see a sign of behavioral biometrics as well.
1: <laughs> the, uh, you know, it was visionary. There was a number of programs that evolved from that basic uh, active authentication idea right through to very, very deep um, and towards the standardisation. So uh, it, it happened over a number of years. they, 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 they were, I would guess instrumental in 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 the evolution of this uh, technology reaching the markets uh, um, distribution it has
0: yeah i think it it plays in well with how we've seen the development of many other technologies as well that it's gone from the human operators physically listening to a message to human operators essentially computing by hand from early keyboards to to what now computing and machines can do not only on on keystroke dynamics but also on the swiping and And uh, touches on a, on a smartphone and our modern devices, so it, it's uh, it's been a great journey, and uh, I think we can move on to our next questions from the history and and go to what we can do today. So, when it comes to fraud mitigation, what are some of the outcomes that behavioral biometrics work to help achieve?
1: Well, you know, behavioral biometrics, as you as you probably picked up, the concept is quite uh, generic. You know, this idea of verifying a user is who they say they are. Uh, but it has been like with many other security technologies, uh, the banks and the fintech industry who have embraced the new technology uh, to help it, it with its problems. And the reasons there, they're early adopters, they have the problem and, and you know, to be blunt about it, they have the funding to uh, to support the investment into new technologies. So they looked at it um, with us back then um, and, and found a number of use cases from the classic. You know, I mean, first off, there's no silver bullet to the problem of verifying edge users that so there is this there's many many technologies and we've evolved to a point where one uses a, a number of approaches in a kind of layered architecture this is kind of the state of play so best practices uh, and, and technologies kind of come and go in that and and, and behavioral kind of enter the fray uh, as one of the layers and has has, has stood the course of time uh, and as i said become um, you know a, a tool of choice of the f- uh, fraud um, prevention And and the reason of this is is there's the use cases, first off, uh, coupled with the user experience and coupled with the fact that mobile has become of age. So if you think back to when we were doing this 2006 onwards, there wasn't really a mobile market for fintech or or, or fraud. You know, there wasn't that much e-commerce. There was a very limited internet banking. Some early adopters had had it out there, but it wasn't as widespread. And particularly in the case of peer-to-peer payments that just didn't exist. So, you know, as they evolved and then saw the need that the user experience and the the, the fraud levels rose, uh, Behavioural has those aspects that it is quite good uh, for the end user, for the consumer to use uh, and also the strength in depth. And so applying it first off to basic uh, user verification, kind of moving on then to uh, account takeover because of the continuous nature of Behavioural and uh, that was the original kind of places where it was applied. Uh, but even before the end user kind of gets involved, the consumer gets involved. Uh, Behavioral has the some of the features are great for NAO, for, for new account fraud prevention, uh, because you can kind of see and, and look at what a new user is doing and, and apply that there. And so they have the whole idea, if it's not the person who says they are uh, who is it has led to the thinking and the application of this in the area of automation and bots first very basic is this a a, a human or not uh, and we've evolved that into what we call you know we use it's a it's a behavior term, i think auto modeling which helps categorization of automation uh, which then has led to much better orchestration of some of the automated attacks which have been great for fraud prevention as well so yeah it initially kind of took the basic, let's verify the user, let's do this in a great way where there's a strong uh, uh, technology, sc- strong scoring for that user, but also then that the user experience was, was to the fore. And you got to remember back then they were using very cumbersome technologies like one-time calculators and out-of-band SMSs and, and you know, some techniques based on, on, on cryptography, uh, which really confused the end users. And so anything that brings in this area of almost frictionless uh, is very, very useful as well.
0: And when it comes to these outcomes with behavioral biometrics, ultimately, it, it's it's there to both help the customers and the, the consumers. How have you seen this impact consumers in in the real world?
1: Um, I think people well don't know it's there most of the time, all of a sudden they were using legacy technologies and finding them uh, kind of scary and cumbersome, and quite a few people would do it once, maybe twice. Uh, and then kind of go, well, that's awkward, or I don't know the answers to the questions have been asked because of the friction. Uh, And so there's a lot of churn, a lot of incomplete journeys uh, that the consumers ultimately found frustrating. Uh, I think now people don't realize how often and how frequent they're using applications that don't introduce this friction, introduce introduce this uh, um, uh, confusion to them. And that's where the behavioral biometrics and, and, and pure technologies have paved the way for a much uh, more rapid, frequent, uh, particularly in fast moving transactions like buying tickets and buying coffee in a store, these kind of very basic small things uh, now have all the levels of security with yet none of the challenges and friction people have and they just kind of forget that the security is embedded in those things.
0: Yeah, a lot of things going on in the background, keeping us all safe. Uh, so, what are the benefits that organizations can drive using behavioral biometrics?
1: Well, I think I alluded to them along the way, but you know, this this unique tool with good user experience, strong accuracy for common problems like friction, churn, incomplete journeys, uh, account takeover, account sharing. And these are common beyond fintech, you know, I think this education. Uh, especially where you don't expect the, cons- the consumer to be the one to understand and make complicated, sophisticated decisions on security. This, this, this is an area where behavioral has, has great promise. So you know, right originally, the fintech and, and banking worlds and fraud prevention, but uh, I think we'll see uh, more of this.
0: Yeah, I like to think of it as what can we do with a little bit more trust and and looking at what what new services have evolved when we see innovations like the electronic IDs or, or super apps come up and, and all of these services that have been enabled with with that increased trust is, uh, is interesting. And of course, with, with more trust added on with behavioral biometrics, there's so many services we can evolve from that. Is that something you, you have seen as well?
1: Yeah, it's, um, yeah, the explosion in services financial services uh, and, and, and and the related fields uh, has a lot to do with the fact that these technologies have really taken away the risk and uh, you know allowed people to do more and more and more if you think originally back to what we were doing say with our internet banking was uh, checking your accounts and maybe making a transfer to somebody you already knew and you had set up in some way and now here we are you know many times a day effortlessly paying and doing transactions from from our mobiles to you know third parties, new parties, uh, lots of e-commerce and, and you know, you don't think at all about how those trust relationships and how that security is put in place. And a lot of it is it's just, it's there in, in layers and layers and layers with, with a lot more transparency.
0: Yeah, from, from checking your balance to instant loans and purchases and, and everything. Uh, so why should organizations employ multiple layers of defense as part of their fraud mitigation strategy?
1: Um, well, you know, it's it's just security practices. It's, it's 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 there's no silver bullet. Not one solution would have all. You're removing the uh, all eggs in one basket kind of approach to security. You know, if one layer is is, is somehow uh, broken or has some question marks, then the other layers are are there as well. So um, it it is about how the security industry as a whole. Has taken the approach that you know you 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 uh, you, you stay ahead of the attacking uh, uh, curve, should I say, where where there's new new and evolving attacks uh, coming on and on, and as you keep your layers uh, evolving, uh, improving, and adding uh, newer innovation uh, as those layers, then then you kind of that's that's the way to keep ahead. Of, uh, of the bad guys, um, but they—you uh, know—this has kind of been predicted out for. There were some seminal papers. Uh, the death of authentication from Bob Blakeley is one I can, I can still remember, where they said all of the layers are gone. What are going to be the new ones? But it also concluded that you don't just go out with the old and in with the new. You evolve these things in, and it's how—if how you see in security protocols—if you looked at the abbreviations before, it's things like SSLv3. They evolve over time. Well, a lot of this is just that you are putting in new layers, new security, uh, and allowing that to happen over time and, and, and removing stuff that's, that you know, that is questionable and doesn't have, have security. Well, behavioral kind of came into, into the forest, as I said, early, uh, the first, yeah, I guess the, it, it was proposed as an additional layer a, a number of years ago, uh, kind of in parallel with things like device identity, device reputation, geolocation, IP location, Uh, looking at transactions amounts and then kind of cross-channel steps and and they are all complementary technologies people apply some or all of these in in most kind of transactions and and, uh, the fact that they complement each other and it's kind of you get the one and one is three type of approach of adding layers together it's not just the the sum of the parts they actually complement each other and help them them work Uh, things like uh, behavioral um, on its own, is fine, but uh, if you then have some concept of the device the user's on, the form factor, you can enhance the behavioral by knowing it's it's like a tablet versus a phone versus a desktop, and so you can see where a device uh, layer uh, uh, complements the behavioral there, and, and that's 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 how the, the the layers interact and work together.
0: I think that's a the, the complementary aspect you mentioned It's always a, a good thing to keep in mind that it's not. It's not like adding 16 layers of active friction where you're gonna ping your phone and then you're gonna look at a hard token and then you're gonna do something else. These are all things happening in the background and just more data you can analyze about the person what you mentioned, the, the device and the, and the location of like, what is this person or this user normally engage with and, and how much of that can we, can we know and analyze?
1: Yeah, it's, it is it is also important to recognize um, that not blindly adding layers, you just don't add more and more and more. Yeah, you have to add the right layers and the right, and, and that's where I think the expertise uh, and the many eyes on it approach. So the complementary technologies work together, uh, many people trying these technologies together and, and figuring out which ones work together best but but you can actually make things work by just blindly putting on layers and sensors and, and different things. So you really have to trust the expertise. And this again kind of plays into where behavioral fits. You're not asking the end consumer to make these judgment calls of if these layers have worked together. You're putting that question and decisioning in the hands of the security and fraud expert. And this again is how the, the many layers working together but done in this transparent way where the questions are asked and put to the fraud expert rather than the consumer user is one of the main reasons I think these approaches of layers and transparency have, have helped.
0: Making better risk assessments so the consumers can get the outcomes that they that they want to try to achieve at least. Yeah. How do you think that behavioral biometrics will evolve in the future?
1: Um well you know you mentioned I'd be involved with things like the early implementations of treaty secure uh, well, we didn't know it back then how such of, you know, the design of those architectures uh, uh, would have such a wide-reaching impact, uh, but, you know, it was based on good principles, based on those uh, best of breed practices at the time, um, and then it effectively has become how MFA, multifactor authentication, and it's ubiquitous now from, you know, from payments to the workforce to how you authenticate around the, uh, the place with your QR codes and everything, all those architectures have evolved from that one point. The, the early adopter problem was the payment world where these security architectures were designed and scrutinized and, and put in play. But they have gone on to do much more things. They're, they're, they're now everywhere. And it's the exact same type of thing you do in your workplace as you do as you do in your payments with your card. And while I feel behavioral biometrics is on a similar trajectory, uh, it's, it's got use way beyond the consumer fraud use case we've been speaking of today. It has the same, it delivers the same promise, the same value uh, in many more use cases. So I see things like standardization uh, and the ubiquitous placement of this inside your device rather than in the app, and and, and not just in one use case, but in all. Uh, And it was the kind of thing DARPA, in their visionary, you know, what's the future of security, had envisioned. And I think we're just on kind of stop two on that journey uh, to seeing behavioral biometrics uh, in a much more ubiquitous applied everywhere. From your smartphone, tablet, TV, car, whatever, the, the, the user being part of the security solution and using behavioral as one of the layers in that, is, 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 you know, is, is where I think this is gonna go.
0: Sounds like an exciting and bright future.
1: Well, we certainly hope so. It's, it's, you know, it's been, I say life's work, but uh, the, the team at BehaviourSec and LexisNexis Nexus Resolutions have, you know, committed to this and have, have put a lot of time and energy in it. A lot of our advanced research and lots, lots of the exciting work we're doing is all about making that happen. That's
0: great. Well, thank you, Neil, for sharing your experience and insights. Any, any closing statement?
1: No, thanks, Anthony. Great to see you again, as I said. Good
0: to have you. And for our audience, thank you so much for listening. I hope you found this episode interesting. Make sure to tune in again soon for the next episode of the Identity Trust Pulse.
1: The information provided in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to and shall not be used as legal advice. The views and opinions expressed in this program are solely those of the speakers and don't necessarily reflect the views or position of LexisNexus Nexus Resolutions. LexisNexus Nexus Resolutions does not warrant that the information provided in this podcast is accurate or error-free.